If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Hello and welcome to the second part of our Everything You Want to Know Halloween special with Professor Owen Davies. Yesterday, we delved into the origins of the festival and its traditions. And in this second episode, Owen will be tackling listener questions on the history and evolving mythology of our most popular Halloween monsters. From the real inspirations behind Count Dracula to the first photograph of a ghost. Welcome back, Owen. Thanks for joining me for the second part of our Halloween special, in which we're going to be talking all about ghosts, monsters, vampires, witches, ghouls, all the kind of supernatural beings that we associate with Halloween. So before we go any further, I wanted to start with a question from Catherine0411 on Instagram, who has asked, how did ghouls, ghosts, vampires and witches become associated with Halloween? Halloween was this moment in the the Catholic liturgical calendar, uh, a time of year when the living and the dead were at the closest um, because th- these were this all Hallowtide festivals of Halloween, All Saints Day on the 1st of November, All Souls Day on the 2nd, were all about commemorating and celebrating the dead, celebrating the saints, I should say. I mean, All Souls Day was very much about the tormented souls in purgatory and kind of compassion for their very, very slow journey to heaven. And so it, it's understandable that the church's message that this was a period when the living in a sense, are communicating, not directly, but are, in in a sense, closest with the dead at at this time of year, both their own personal dead and the the saints in heaven. It's not surprising then, in a a, a popular tradition, it became more widely associated with supernatural beings and, and as a time when you might expect to have some form of supernatural experience. Although that said, it's quite difficult to tie down. I did a whole survey about ghost seeing in the 19th century and there wasn't any particular emphasis on, on Halloween. So this part of this is a bit abstract. Obviously, these these stories that we're looking at probably do go a bit beyond Halloween. And to give us a sense of some of the, the themes that we might be touching on or the stories we might be touching on in this episode, Matt has asked, what can popular folklore tales about supernatural beings, what can they tell us about the concerns of different particular periods? The folklore collected by folklorists in the 19th century are very rich, telling us how people, in a sense, lived, even right through into the early 20th century. Many people still lived with a sense that they shared their lives with the supernatural, with supernatural beings. And then if you go back to looking at, so say, the evidence from you know witch trial records in the 16th, 17th centuries, you know, which which obviously about 
accusations of witchcraft but often include lot, a lot more sorts of folkloric material about you know witches associations with fairies and with ghosts and spirits you know it's, it's rich material if we look at that we we see once again the ways in which people were negotiating you know a lot of the time they were negotiating with these other other things other entities who could be harmful you know who could be spiteful but could also might you know might might be helpful the fairies are very am- ambiguous characters as well and so you know the idea of you know leaving food out or leaving things for the fairies you know which which kind of dies out in parts of the, most of the UK in the 19th century but still there in Irish tradition and strong fairy tradition in parts of Scotland as well so the t- the tales tell us about the human relations in short with the supernatural and how important it is and and, and above all the idea that we are not alone and we have to negotiate with the supernatural. How much do you think that religion, especially Christianity in the West, has determined these stories of monsters and what we're scared of? Particularly in Catholic tradition, from which Halloween comes from, essentially, early church Catholic, where there is a very vibrant sense of communication through masses, you know, for example, with the spirits, the souls of, of the dead. That, say, fosters a culture of believing in, and, and of this being a live issue all the time. A good example would be, a, I saw a quote from an from a Irish priest from the 1890s, basically saying, some of my fellow clergymen tell, my, tell their flocks that they shouldn't believe in nonsense like fairies. And I say, oh, I'm quite happy for my flock to believe in fairies, because he says, it's all part of the supernatural. If you try and criticise fairies, they'll go, well, what about ghosts? And he says, you can't just pull one out. You know, that's a, just a, one little story which gives you a chink into the ways in which if you put supernaturalism at the front of a religion, you've kind of got to accept that in popular tradition and folklore, it it, it become all bundled up with a whole range of other beliefs on this. Protestant faith shouldn't believe in ghosts. If you're a good Protestant, you should not believe in ghosts at all because that was denounced by the early Protestant church as, as Catholic superstition. The souls did not return because that, in a sense, was part of purgatorial belief. So it depends what faith. So what are some of the earliest stories that we have of supernatural beings? Well, it all depends. It depends, doesn't it? You, you can go you can go back to Beowulf and, and Grendel, you know, and the and the monster. You can look at early Anglo-Saxon leech books, which are kind of medical texts and find cures for for elves and, and fairies and to keep, you know, spirits away. You can you know, I would I would I would talk about you know a very ancient universal is the Mara, which gives its name to nightmare, and the Mara comes from actually a bodily experience of sleep paralysis. Um, but we have records of that going back right into antiquity. She's a pressing demon, you might call her, but she's is widespread in culture, and, and she was used to explain you know night terrors where you feel a pressure on the chest. It's a well-known, recognised condition that around. 20% of the, pop- the global world population might experience and has always been interpreted in, in supernatural ways in different cultures. So the Mara, you know, I, I would consider to be one of the most interesting of the sort of ancient beings because it ties into a physical experience we have today. There's very few that do that. I wanted to ask you some questions we've had in now on some of the Halloween big hitters, the monsters that we all associate with Halloween. Let's start with ghosts. So Marina on Instagram has asked whether ghosts have always been objects of fear. Yes, but it all depends. Again, it's interesting when you when you ask people what is a ghost, you get you get multiple different answers. But if we go if we go back and say go back several centuries or even you know it's, it's the last century, a ghost was essentially the soul of the dead. 
So if you start from the basis that a ghost is the return of the soul of the dead in some form or other, and it could be it could be visually, it could be orally, you know, or whatever, then yes, they've always been objects of fear. But at the same time, in, in, a, in a Catholic pre-Reformation tradition, just with All Souls Day, the concept of purgatory, purgatory was a concept whereby everyone um, basically was a sinner. And therefore, when you died, your soul went into purgatory and it was thrashed with red-hot pokers and tortured and all sorts of horrible things. And you, you know, if you were a big sinner, you might spend thousands of years in purgatory, your soul wailing with all the pain and horror. And if you were a very pious person, you might just be a few years because you had a few, few dodgy thoughts, you know, in, in the whole of your life. So in a world where purgatory is fundamental to people's conception of life and death and the afterlife, then communicating with ghosts or the souls was not necessarily scary. You know, that's what masses, you know, would say masses for the masses for the dead, for the souls. That's a legitimate relationship with a ghost, so to speak. But when it comes to a ghost suddenly appearing that you don't know, that's scary and that's shocking. And that's what leads to the, you know, so many ghost tales and legends is, is the unwanted ghosts, so to speak, which which could come back for all sorts of reasons to right wrongs, be the spirit of a murder victim, you know, pointing to where they were murdered and all those sorts of things, you know, what we call purposeful ghosts. But you don't know what the purpose is necessarily. And Manx too has asked whether you can tell us about any medieval or ancient ghost stories. Couple of medieval. So we we get a series of stories, one's called the Byland Abbey stories, which are written down in manuscript. And these are uh, stories which are real accounts, real accounts, inverted commas, written down by a monk, Byland Abbey. And he tells of seri- various r- recent events in and around villages, particularly in Yorkshire, whereby the dead seem to have come out of the grave. These are kind of physical, almost zombie-like. And so they, apparently, you know, it's terrifying villagers. The dead are coming out of their graves and they're attacking. They're actually physically attacking people. So that's pretty, um, that's pretty scary kind of ghost story. And it's a certain specific type of bodily ghost. It's the kind of what you know what we call a revenant. It's uh, it's it's the physical dead returning like a vampire. But we also get quite a lot of ghost stories in medieval manuscripts which are t- connected with purgatory, you know, and, it, and we get sort of stereotypical sort of motifs of, of you know, a, a poor, pale, you're, you know, a ghost appearing, perhaps, you know, looking anguished and tortured, you know, just with a bit of a loincloth around them. And it comes back to say, pleading, pleading for masses to be said so he can get through purgatory. So the purgatorial ghost who comes back to say, oh, help me, help me, is quite a common strong one in medieval manuscript sources. And so from this purgatorial ghost onwards, Tracegate on Instagram has asked how ghost stories have changed down the centuries. They have. Some elements remain the same. You know, if you're thinking about how, how people describe ghosts as white and translucent and all those things you get going back through centuries. Stories have changed from medieval period. The, you know, the story I just told you about the Byland's Abbey and a very physical sort of return of the dead revenants. Those stories kind of really die out, in a, certainly in a British context, those sorts of stories die out after the medieval period. People generally don't tell stories and accounts of how a corpse has come out of the grave and attacked them. Ghosts, particularly in, in a post-Reformation Protestant context, are, are much more spiritual visitations. The biggest, one of the biggest change, more recent changes from the 19th century is the decline of a, what we call purposeful ghosts. That is the, the, the whole idea, which you can tap back into medieval purgatory beliefs is the idea that ghosts return to write for for a purpose obviously and once they've completed then they say their mission that's it they 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 no longer will return 
So in one sense, that's kind of them seeking help from the living. And if, if the living can help them complete the anguish or the thing that they've come back for, then they're happy back in heaven. You know, they're not going to come back again. Those sorts of purposeful ghosts tend to decline in 19th century folklore and stories. And we get more and more of purposeless ghosts, ghosts that are kind of just memories of an act. It could be a tragedy, but they're not coming back. It's kind of, a, it's you know, almost like you know, a hologram, or this is where someone was gibbeted. Or, you know, it could be a repetitive action. So plenty of stories, for example, of, you know, the ghost of a, of a blacksmith, and you just hear him hammering, because that's what he did for 70 years. And, you know, when he died, you just still hear the hammering, or footsteps. These have no purpose. Uh, but they memorialise repetitive action or tragedy. Next, we have a question from Marina about ghosts. What or when was the first claimed photograph of a ghost? Yeah, yeah, ghost photographs are fascinating. Fascinating, uh, they are indeed. You have to divide this up between the first images that looked like ghosts and the first photography that claimed they had captured a ghost. Two different things there. So we do get in the early years of photography, and I'm talking here early 1850s, we do get people playing around with uh, camera exposures. By accident, camera exposures, um, if someone, you know, we, it's a long exposure and someone just quickly passes across with their, you know, with a goat or something, it might just get captured and it'll look fairly faint. And so people immediately from early photography were saying, oh, that's a strange effect. And then in the early 1850s, a number of people, a man named Brewster, for example, who was a kind of science pop- popularizer started creating deliberate images of translucent humans go, ooh, spooky, again, spooky ghost sort of thing. Uh, this could be, again, say, by double exposure, by putting some, you know, someone briefly standing in front of the camera, uh, but not for the whole exposure. People would use two panes of glass, so a bit like in a train when you get a reflection. You look through the train on a dark night and you see this almost ghostly figure of yourself or people at the back. So they're playing around with that things with, with plate glass and having someone in front of a glass and someone behind the glass, and that creates a kind of an image of like an encounter with a ghost as well. But that, that's all kind of going, oh, look, we can we can make these ghostly images rather than saying, I've captured a ghost. The first person who seems to say, I have captured the spirits of the dead, is an American, it's a guy called William Mumler, who was an amateur photographer, but also then became very, quite notorious and made a living out of professing to take images of people's dead loved ones by them so it'd be portrait shots with then the image behind them it was all done with double exposure you know he was a controversial figure he was caught out but boy he, you know he, he sold thousands and he basically kick-started the whole sort of ghost photography enterprise you know which 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 you know shapes today people's perceptions of spiritualism and um, uh, and what ghosts kind of look like on film on celluloid you know so yeah william mumler a, a dodgy a dodgy amateur photographer 1862 his first claim one was 1862, and he said he—I think he said he'd seen—he did a double exposure, which, which he then claimed that the, the mysterious ghost figure that appeared was his young female cousin who had died, and that's the first one. And before photography, how were ghosts generally depicted in art? Were they seen as translucent and almost made of gas, or were they more concrete figures? You get two types. The, the, the most enduring is the shrouded ghost, the white shrouded ghost. Come, goes right through into 20th century and Scooby-Doo and you know Casper the Ghost. You know that has origins right back into burial traditions because essentially, uh, you know, in, until the 18th, 19th centuries, most people weren't buried in coffins. You know, when you died, you were put on a, a board or a table and you were basically wound up in the winding sheet or the sheet of the bed sheet 
and that's what you were buried in. So, so it's a white sheet. You're carried in a white sheet. So if you were an engraver or making a woodcut in a 16th century pamphlet about ghosts, how do you communicate you to the audience that you're talking? What you see as a ghost? Well, it's you. You have them in a, a in a winding sheet, a white sheet, and that's an instant signif- signifier that that what you're seeing on a painting or on a woodcut is a ghost. But you do get some engravings. Uh, where, uh, particularly in the 18th century, where it's a bit more gaseous, you know, kind of appears in a cloud. The, the really dominant one, as you say, which goes right today, is the white, where, you know, which is why people imitating ghosts put on a white sheet. And finally on ghosts, Ali Louisa has asked when ghost tours became popular. Good question. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly. The real boom in the ghost tours would be 1980s onwards. It's fairly recent. We get people going to look for ghosts. That's a different matter. We get people going to look for ghosts and ghost scares over centuries. And um, I found loads of cases and also court cases from 19th century London in particular, but also other big cities in the 19th century of people putting on a white sheet and roaming around ghost yards at night to try just a bit of a, bit of a laugh, but end up being prosecuted by the police for, for disorder and disturbance because thousands of people would turn out to see the ghost and they'd be blocking the streets. So you actually get court cases from this. So you've got people going out to look for ghosts for a thrill. And, and that's what it's building on. That's what ghost tours are essentially building on. And they're just commercialising it. And most of them are ghost tours, or the early ones and the ones today were, were focused around the sites you would expect to see ghosts. So, you know, castles and churches. Uh, and then obviously, you know, you get urban ghost tours as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. People's relationship with the sea and, and the monsters of the deep is a very different place today than it was in the past. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Is there any sense of, in history, there being a desire for, I guess, what we'd call dark tourism now? So people wanting to visit murder sites or, as you say, the sites of horrible past events? Yeah, that goes back, that goes back uh, at least several centuries. 
dark tourism, macabre sort of souvenir hunting. Uh, we, we get that with famous murders and executions, certainly in the early 19th century. There's a famous case called the Red Barn Murder uh, in the early 19th century in England. Uh, it was a sensational case, uh, murder of a woman. It was uh, in the national newspapers, the trial, and then the execution of the murderer, murderer Maria Martin. But then people would went and sought out where it happened, and they started taking bits and pieces of the barn and anything around it. And it, then, the, the, then there became a trade in, in, in the macabre trinkets from it. You get souvenirs from the uh, executions and dissections in the 19th century. So you get pieces of skin of executed murderers being sold and traded and passed around as well. So that whole idea goes back a fair bit. The you know ghost tours are tapping into something much older, which is that that again that that, that, that sort of I don't want to, you know I, I'm I'm scared by the idea of ghosts, but at the same time I want I really would like to see one really you know uh, I, I want to be a bit scared and you you get that with various cases and the, the Cock Lane ghost in in London is a good example of that where this supposed haunting of, of this young girl in in an inn led the innkeeper to some you know commercial practices to make sure that the, it became a sensation because it was driving a lot of trade to his pub. Which ties into all those pubs today, which claim they have a ghost. You know, it, that's that's an old tradition of innkeepers. How can I commercialise? How can I get more clients through the door? Well, I'll say there's a ghost and see. Some people might want to come and stay or visit just to see the ghost. So let's move on now from ghosts to some different supernatural beings. Lithgow has asked about vampires and how much the idea of the vampires changed across cultures. I'm sure you could give me. A two-hour-long lecture on this, but what are some of the the key points? If we we have to kind of if we break down vampires into the idea that these are the undead, but the vampires are also what we call corporeal; they are bodily. It's not like a ghost, which is essentially a spiritual entity. Uh, vampires are corporeal, so it's, it is literally you know the idea of a body coming back out of the grave then you tie that in with the idea of it attacking people, not necessarily drawing their blood, but it's the idea of the, the, t- the two things which go back a long way, the idea of the dead coming back to life, um, sometimes often looking cadaverous, and the fact that they then are, are out to get people. <laughs> that goes back into antiquity, that whole idea. So in that sense, the, zo- the ghost, the zombie and the vampire are all part of the same thing, really. Yeah, part part of, but but then obviously you know religion creates purgatory, which creates purgatorial ghosts, and and then uh, you know um, different traditions, different cultures, different religions all feed into what these revenants, these dead returning to live in, how they actually express themselves is, is dependent on different cultures, different religions. You know, over the centuries, millennia of this, the ghost doesn't necessarily attack. So put it that way, you know, a ghost doesn't necessarily attack. We talked about you know purposeless and purposeful ghosts, but they don't go around literally mauling people whereas the whole idea of kind of vampire or however you want to call it the undead do you've got literary evidence for this but you've also got plenty of archaeological evidence for what are called deviant burials and this, these go by, right back to prehistory where essentially you get burials which are out in out beyond the community you know out in bogs for example or out and out in, in in rough wastelands or crossroads and you know the whole idea is you you stake it down you chop its head off you put rocks on it the whole idea is that people really believe that physically you can if it's it's a physical return of the dead then physically you can deal deal with it by staking cutting stones whatever pinning it down and so we've got plenty of archaeological evidence for that that people are trying to stop corpses coming back out of the ground 
So it's quite a distinct tradition and goes back a long, long way of the physical, physical return of the dead as well as the kind of spiritual return of the dead. And Luke Gauci has asked, was Count Dracula real? And if not, who or what was the legend of Dracula based on? Well, there was a Count Dracula, Dracula. Yes, there was, and uh, well-known, also known notoriously as Vlad the Impaler for his love of impaling his uh, enemies. So yes, there is, there is, you know, Vlad Dracula, and and uh, he's the term Dracula comes from son of of Drac, which means dragon. And the historians have traced this back to his father's membership of an order of knights of the dragon. Okay, so it's not necessarily tied to any sort of myth of killing dragons or anything like that. So he is a very real person in the 15th century in Valencia, which is part of what's in Romania now. And he was well known at the time, obviously, we have woodcuts from the 16th century and stuff of, of, of impaling. He was became notorious across Europe. But at the same time, also a hero to some, as because he was considered to be a Christian fighting off the forces of the Ottoman Empire in, in Southeast Europe. So yeah, very real figure rooted in, in very real history. But not necessarily... A vampire. <laughs> he was not a vampire. No, there is no evidence. But you can see why he was picked up on, on by you know, as, a, as a figure by Bram Stoker and others, because obviously the name uh, and also the fact his his impaling activities did cause a lot of blood to flow. Another question on vampires we've had in from the Posthumator, who has asked, "Have we always sexualized vampires?" It's an interesting question. But again, it comes back to what what period and how how what vampires are in different periods and different cultures. What I would say, when you look at kind of examples of the revenants, it's difficult, whether it's from the archaeological evidence or from the sort of manuscript evidence, it's difficult to say too much about whether there's a sexualized element in those concepts. But one aspect of the vampire in myth and legend are succubi and incubi from, from classical antiquity, the idea of pressing demons that assault you at night. And so, the, you know, in, in the vampire legends, there's a strong element of that. And they are obviously explicitly sexualized. It's male night demons pressing on and assaulting sexually women and then succubi the same as men, extracting, you know, extracting, extracting their semen. Um, huge, 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 you know, theological debate in the medieval period about succubi and whether they could actually procreate with humans from their assault. And they would be talking about, you know, they would take the semen from one sleeper and then they would go another and inseminate uh, you know, a woman. So, it, you know, this idea of, of, of pressing demons, male and female, that sexually assault at night was quite a serious debate in the medieval period. And that does feed into the whole vampire legend and myth because some of the, some of the sort of revenant uh, things are about physical assaults at night. So, yeah, I mean, in that sense, in that aspect of it, yes, there is a, there is a sexualized vampire figure in, in, in history and ancient history. I also wanted to ask you about witches, which is a subject I know you know a lot about. Have witches always been seen as as an old crone in a pointy hat with a broomstick? That's the stereotype we think of today. It's a long stereotype, but you can go back to antiquity and find beautiful and young witch figures as well. So the two have kind of always been there. You can have the, the beautiful Intantris, um, who can perform spells and magic for good and harm. And then you have the witch hag figure, which can be a very supernatural being. The, the witch hag is is both a physical stereotype, but also taps into this much deep-seated idea 
and you know that the ancient nightmare figure the mara female pressing demon again can be a beautiful or, or hag-like creature when you look at the witch trials themselves of the from the late 15th to the 18th century the witch stereotype of the hag is very strong in art very strong in art you look at famous paintings done at the time in the 16th century so invariably the figure of the witch is portrayed as a hag-like and that yeah, and that ties in with hag-like interpretations of the what's known as the witch of endor the woman of endor from book of samuel the whole story biblical story of, of the witch or woman of endor conjuring up um, the ghost of samuel this became it was a huge debate and tied into the witch trials she was invariably described as a hag in all the in in, in in early modern sources, even though in the Bible she's no age is given, so there's an automatic assumption of, of you know again a bit like when we talked about ghosts and how do you recognise a ghost? Well, you, if you if you're doing a woodcut of a of a witch or a painting of a witch, make her ugly uh, and put her in a hat and a broomstick, and everyone goes, oh, a witch, yeah. So it does exist, but when you look at the actual prosecution of people, you know it's much more complex. In other words, what people actually the people who are actually accused of witchcraft is much more diverse than just. Um, old, supposedly hag-like looking women. In recent decades, we've seen a much less scary uh, model of the witch emerge. I'm thinking of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, bewitched, this idea of wicker and female empowerment model of witchcraft. How did that emerge? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's a fascinating development, which obviously has its origins in the 60s and, and bewitched. And I Love Jeannie, and two very popular comedy programs which presented the young attractive housewife witch but we also had other films from the post-war period like bell book and candle kim novak again the attractive young witch uh, who's practicing spells but isn't necessarily out it's not who but has is, is positive is nice uh, not only physically nice but also you know they're, they're out to do a bit of mischief but, a bit, but in general good it's the yin yang you've got the, you've got the classic old envious spiteful hag-like figure of which goes back centuries and, and then of Wizard of Oz you know portrayed it classically as well and then this this rise of the, the attractive witch again you know it, there's, there's there's various reasons one of it is it comes out of the rise of Wicca and, and, and neo-pagan witchcraft uh, in the 1950s where which is a religion but at the same time there are people who self-identify as witches of all ages and types so that that kind of feeds into it but you know that's the power of tv media someone someone came up you know particularly of bewitched and said Let, let's create a sexy witch uh and wow that's proved popular so when it comes to the you know 80, 1980s and 90s you know they're all going they're all things like charmed and buffy and other all oh oh the huge debt to bewitched i think because they realize it's a seller and it's attractive and it, and it's it, it basically um it, it commodifies uh, witchcraft and magic but at the same time it's enticing because people go oh, I'd love to be like that I'd love to have those powers I wouldn't want to be a, a witch witch as in, in a, as in the 17th century and burned on you know burned at the stake well but you know being one of those sorts of witches oh god yeah you know, when Buffy was big I used to get lots of uh, emails from people in, uh, from teenagers in America and this country going how can I can I can you, can you teach me spells and stuff and like, okay. <laughs> I can't. did you teach them any and I don't really have the time now <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've spoken about witches, we've spoken about ghosts and vampires. Are there any other Halloween monsters that you think really deserve a mention here? 
You can talk about various boggarts and fairies and and, and that that world who are again can be quite mischievous. I mean, we you know we were talking in a previous episode about mischief night, and uh, the fairy world is known to be quite mischievous and, and obviously can be quite um, spiteful at the same time if you don't treat them right. So I think the relationships with the fairies is another another interesting one, which goes back many years. But very few people will claim to have relationships with the fairies anymore, which is maybe a sad thing. You might call active fairy law, in other words, people actually saying they've had communications encounters with them largely dies out by the early 19th century and then they just become these figures stories about fairies rather than i've met a fairy a fairy did this the fairy was been riding my horses at night it largely dies out Kay on instagram has asked to what extent does a fixation on monsters reflect the communities that fear them i wonder if you might be able to give us some examples of that if you look through history and look through today communities create an alternative. We, we, we all have horrors within our own communities, but at the same time, we seem to be innately create an other world of, of creatures. Not so, and it can be monsters, um, but we always seem to need to think there is something else out there. It seems, in one sense, it's scary. At the same time, it's comforting that we're not al- <laughs> we're not alone in the world. And you can see this in, in multiple ways in, in contemporary culture. So you know, we were just saying that you know, fairy culture or fairy belief decline um but obviously we have alien encounters you know thousands and thousands of people claiming alien encounters we we've 20th century cryptids bigfoot and yetis are people are endlessly obsessed can we prove that there are these others with Loch Ness monster so we do we do seem to need to create these sorts of otherworldly supernatural and monstrous beings Lots of scholars from different disciplines have written about what it means for us, why we create these monsters, uh, and it's a field day for psychotherapists. And finally, are there any once terrifying historical monsters that haven't stood the test of time? Yeah, one sort of monster that we probably hear less of than we might have done 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 300 years ago is a sea monster. You know, they used to appear on old maps uh, in all sorts of guises uh, into the 19th century. There would still be reports published in newspapers of strange, monstrous uh, sea sea creatures that have been seen by sailors, you know, huge. But they do seem to die out. And then, you know, we've obviously got the Loch Ness Monster, you know, as a kind of a residual sort of part of that one. But yeah, you don't hear very few reports these days of weird, strange sea monsters. And obviously part of that has been the idea of scientifically explaining these monsters through giant squids and and whales and coelacanths and these very unusual-looking ancient fish from the deep. But that kind of doesn't, you know, that doesn't explain away why people doesn't don't see it anymore. It's clearly, a, a, you know, a broader reason about seafaring and how we travel and cross the sea, and and how many people do travel across the sea today. And if they do, they're in massive cruise ships and massive tankers. Um, so you know, people's relationship with the sea and, and the monsters of the deep is a very different place today than it was in the past. That was Professor Owen Davies. If you haven't heard it already, make sure to check out the first part of this Halloween special with Owen, where we spoke about the history of Halloween as a festival and delved into the origins of some of our most popular traditions. Owen's books on supernatural history include America Bewitched, A Supernatural War, Ghosts, A Social History, and the Oxford Illustrated History of Witchcraft and Magic. Owen was also an expert in our series on the Salem Witch Trials, and you can find that by searching for Salem in your podcast feeds or on historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. 
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.